Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. So today I'm so very excited to have someone very special on the show because I've been trying to get this gentleman for way too long. Let me just introduce to you President and CEO of Big Thought. Also, he was a part of a very prestigious uh, program called the Presidential Leadership Scholar Program. He comes from a lot of roles in leadership, including vice president at U.S. Trust, among other things in his very young and stellar uh, career path. So I just welcome Byron Sanders. Thank you so much for Absolutely. finally getting here. Hey, we're doing it together. We're doing it together. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Riley, for Byron, the opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'm not sure where to start because there's so much to talk about. But I think I want to start with the fact that um, you are leading an organization that is doing incredible work and very different. So why don't you just tell us what is Big Thought? What I love the name. What is Big Thought? Um, well, I will say this. It is a tremendous blessing and honor to be able to lead that organization. And the reason why is because um, I was drawn to it uh, as a volunteer on the community first. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, before I was CEO, I was actually on the board. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you about that whole story. But but we're a 30-year organization. I've been based here in Dallas, Texas. How did it start 30 so years I'll ago? Tell you, I'll tell you. Okay. So we actually didn't even used to be called Big Thought. We were Young Audiences. And Young Audiences is a large national network of organizations whose explicit uh, purpose is to bring the arts into the schools. Arts, okay. Right? Um, and so that's what we were. That's what we did. But we kept growing <laughs> and growing and growing. And our scope increased. Our scale increased. And we brought in new skill sets, um, abilities for the organization. And we continued to blossom. And fast forward 30 years later, we're much larger. Um, um, we're one of the, if not the largest organization that's still kind of in the young audience's network. But Big Thought became a uh, institution. Um, we work with City of Dallas, Dallas Independent School District, Dallas County, and a wide range of partners in order to bring experiences uh, to young people that do three things. Okay. One, we help build the creative muscle. The creative muscle. The creative muscle. Because we've all got it, don't we? We all got it. And we need to flex it. Yes, we do. And it doesn't happen by osmosis. We have to try. There's structured um, um, experiences that can start to build that muscle. Two, we help build social and emotional well-being in young people. And then three, we help them find and exert youth voice. So creativity 
social emotional well-being and youth voice, also known as youth agency. Um, the reason why those three things are so critically important is actually they're more important now than they've ever been, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, strangely, it's because of technology. <laughs> Not so strange. I totally I understand know, it's that. It's crazy how that keeps showing up. Um, but so in a world where 65% of young people today are going to be working in jobs that don't yet exist. Isn't that amazing? That's crazy, isn't it? And starting at what age? Starting at all ages right now. Right. So if you're going with a uh, 12th grade on down mm -hmm. of the youth who are in school, formal education today, they will be working in jobs that don't yet exist. And they don't even know what they are. Nor do we. And that's the crazy part, right? That's crazy. That's actually a more conservative estimate. That's from the U.S. Department of Labor a few years back. The, the more updated um, projection is that by 2030, which, you know, we're hitting 2020, 10 years from now, 85% of the jobs that will be available don't exist today. So in a world that's changing at such a rapid clip, how do you predict what we were just saying? Mm -hmm. What's going to be available? What, what skills does a person need? What industry should I be saying? You know, when we ask kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's actually kind of an unfair question. Sure. Um, you know, to, to a third grader, it's unfair to us because we don't even know. In a world that's so dynamically and rapidly changing, the thing that we can do best to prepare a young person to step into that world mm -hmm. is to build these core assets of the kind of person you need to be rather than who exactly you're going to be or what job you're going to do. And industry is starting to catch up with that. They're starting to say, these are the things that I want you to help build human capital pipeline development systems like K-12, higher ed, uh -huh. those types of things. They're saying that, yes, we are going to need people with technical skills, but I'm going to be honest with you. We're probably going to change that five years after we hire them, maybe, right? It's constantly evolving. So bring them in with creativity, mm -hmm. critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. problem solving skills, Emotional intelligence. Oh, that's a big one. These are showing up in lists all over the place from Forbes to LinkedIn to Fortune. These are the number one and these are the top desired workforce skills in the 21st century world. You know, what's interesting about that, just to add to it, is that if I'm doing a program in a company on change management, mm -hmm. there are two things that that really seem to be sticky. One is, I will say, you know, change happens mm. because of three things. Here's a tip, TIP. Okay, here we go. Technology, yeah. obviously. Mm -hmm. Information, because people have, we have more information than we can possibly assimilate. Amen. And three, people. People, as long as we demand things, as long as that's we right. are looking for things. So tip, that's the tip. That's what causes change. So... The next thing is an exercise, interesting to tag to what you said, on having the leaders get up on a flip chart and identify just five years from now, mm -hmm. just five years from now, they are going to be hiring someone, and they have to get in small groups and figure out what should we be hiring for. So back to your point, 
for all of these things that you're doing, starting with creativity. So be specific. Give us some examples of what these, starting at third grade, is yeah. that right? Well, actually, we started pre-K three. Okay. So three years old, in fact, um, is where some a lot of our programming begins. All right. And we, now, I told you, we grew significantly the size of scale. We have about nine different distinct program lines. So... Uh, it's kind of like when somebody says, hey, what, do you, what does IBM do? A lot of stuff. <laughs> the ocean. <laughs> right. Big Thought is somewhat similar, so we're more of an enterprise. We have a number of different ways that we get to those three, the big three that I was telling you about, mm-hmm. but I'll give you a distinct example. In one of our programs, it's called uh, Creative Solutions. Creative Solutions is actually work that we do in partnership with the Juvenile Justice Department. So we're working with young people who have been incarcerated before. Um, but our program is, get this, an arts as workforce trauma to healing design. Here's what I mean by that. One, the young people who come to us are on probation. They're referred to us from their probation offices. And it's a seven-week camp over the course mm-hmm. of the summer. Age range is 10 all the way to early adults, about 22, 23. 10 is incarcerated? 10. Oh, my gosh. And unfortunately, there are young people and and many young people who fall in that uh, bracket and younger, actually. Mm. Um, But here's what happens. Uh, They come in, and we have seven weeks with them. Our staff are highly trained teaching artists. It's set on a campus in Dallas. It's SMU, great partner with SMU Meadows School of the Arts. And the young people are going through a series of, at the beginning, low risk but high reward experiences. But it's these experiences that are, quite frankly, just the Trojan horse for delivering really powerful and research-based practices that help young people cope with and work through trauma. Can you give an example? I'll give the perfect example of it. And this is one of my favorite ones. So you remember, um, you don't remember, but you might have studied uh, 1800s and before. They used to make those masks of, um, of people when they, when they pass away, right? They would yes. have the mask and they would, and you, some people call them death masks. Some people call them, you know, mask of remembrance, but, um, it was, um, plaster. You put it on your face, hardens all that jazz. So the young people go through that exercise. Now we don't call it death mask and we don't make the connection to like, you know, funerals or anything like they that. They make it, they, make, they make the mask, but they make the mask and how, think about what you have to do in order to do it. One, you can't do it yourself. So you have to work with other people. You can't plaster your own face and then, you know. Um, but what happens is, so young people are putting the, uh, the mask on their peers, on their cohort members. And if you think about what has to happen, it's got to harden, right? Mm-hmm. So all you can do is sit and breathe. If you think about mindfulness... I'm getting yoga it. practices. I'm getting right. It. Interesting. So you breathe deep. And you go to a calm place. Your mask is hardening, and at the same time, those same young people are checking in on you. How you doing? How long does it take? You breathe. It takes a few minutes. Oh, okay. It's not too long. Okay. But it's enough time for you to have a mindful moment, mm. and 
it starts to break down those walls between you and other people. Because for many of our young people, especially those who are juvenile incarceration involved, young people have had on average about 14 distinct traumatic events over the course of their lives. Building secure attachments with other people is not something that has become the norm in their life, mm. right? But that's also something that's really important for um, positive brain health. It's really important for executive function. It's really important for secure relationships to be able to build. Well, we're building that skill set in the course of an artistic endeavor. And at the end, mm. now you have this mask of your own face. Mm. And you look at this mask and then you paint it, you decorate it, you gloss it and bedazzle it and you, you, you put whatever you want on it and then you put it up on a wall, we hang it up and you look at yourself and you call yourself beautiful. There's a lot that's embedded in that experience, mm. but it's all designed to help a young person, one, find their own self-worth, recognize that and call that out for its self-evidence. And then to be able to look around and recognize that in other people as well, builds empathy, builds, um, builds your connection, your connections. Sure. It, it builds your, builds your esteem. Um, and it also builds a skill because you're creating art. Um, and the workforce part, this is a job. We don't call them students. They're actually working artists over the course of the summer. They get paid a stipend for being Is in the program. Right? Absolutely. And we build workforce principles, showing up on time, delivering on time, scheduling, you know, project, you know, being able to, to take a project from beginning to completion. All of those things are woven into this experience and the results speak for themselves. So uh, one of the primary ways that we evaluate the program is through um, uh, recidivism rates. That's How, a big word. Recidivism. That's a big recidivism. The recidivism. likelihood that a person will reoffend and re-enter the juvenile system, um, and we have the lowest one in the county, and we believe, and from the county's um, uh, testimony, we have one of the lowest in the state, if not the lowest. Um, a typical program, you get about a forty-two or thirty-eight percent recidivism rate. And that's a good program. Mm -hmm. It's a good program because without a program, it's sixty to eighty percent. Reoffense wow. rates, right? Wow. But our program, we just got our latest results back, and it was 4%. That's incredible. It Aaron. is. It's a 10-year average of now 9% recidivism oh, rate. What good work. Yeah. Is the work, though, just in juvenile no, it's what also in, in community and with school districts, one of our largest. So that's the program that where we go and our team goes and executes that program. We also stand as a collective impact facilitator. So what we mean by that is it's not just about big thoughts, individual excellence and in producing a high quality experience. It's about can we move an entire ecosystem so that these kinds of experiences are more broadly available to youth all over, not necessarily having to come through the juvenile system. The biggest ecosystem that we operate right now is called Dallas City of Learning. And that's a partnership between Dallas Independent School District and City of Dallas. So Dr. Hinojosa, Michael Hinojosa, who's the superintendent of Dallas Independent School District, and it started off with Mayor um, Mike Rollins at City of Dallas. Their power combined, along with us, uh, executing the, the, uh, the ecosystem. We have now 700-plus partners organizations, 
sites, corporate locations, whose explicit goal is no matter where a kid is in Dallas, they have access to a high quality learning experience over the course of the summer. What we were trying to see is can we stunt the summer slide? Research says a young person in a low income community actually loses three months of learning mm. um, every year, every year. And it's not that they just stop learning. They actually regress three months over the course of the summer. Through summer by not doing something? Just by not doing things, not mm. having experiences. So it's almost like you only went to school six months instead of nine. Imagine that compounding for 13 years, which it actually does. It's a big gap. So do these kids, Byron, mm -hmm. know and the parents know where these locations are and what it takes to That's it. get into the activities? So what we've done is we built a website that accumulates all of these experiences. It's called DallasCityOfLearning.org. We've also gone out into communities. We go out to um, uh, the neighborhood rec center. We go out to apartment complexes, kind of telling um, uh, the story and spreading the word. Hmm. People either go through the uh, website or they go to a local Dallas City of Learning partner, and that's where they get their experiences. And this year, Dallas Morning News just ran an article on it because we just did a, had a big reveal of the data. Um, over 63,000 students got access to these experiences in Dallas. Mm -hmm. It was massive. And the best part is the data shows that those experiences drove and are correlated to academic academic improvements uh, throughout the year for young people all over the city. There's so many entities to this. Uh, so let me get really specific here. Yeah. So partnering with the arts. Give me an example of someone older, um, yeah. a child that um, maybe is in junior high. What kind of art activities would they experience and what's the why behind it? Oh, that's good. That's good. Let me see. A junior high school student. One of our favorite things that we do is called diverse. Um, so imagine 500 children from across the region descend to a location in Deep Ellum. Does that sound like the beginning of a good story? <laughs> well, it is because every um, there's we do about five to six per year. <clears throat> um. Diverse Lounge takes place in Life in Deep Ellum, which is kind of a church slash gathering place slash coffee bar in, uh, in, in Deep Ellum, which is a, you know, place here in Dallas. And, um, young people, a lot of middle school and high school come together. There's a live band on stage, the lights, camera, action, all of that stuff, but it's a spoken word, um, event. And so young people have been working on their pieces over the course of the month in a club called Diverse Club at campus. There's a teaching artist or a teacher um, um, sponsor who's the one who's, you know, kind of guiding that experience. But there are these explicit prompts that get people thinking, get them into the habit of writing and they're writing their own story. So it's like a play? It's not a play. It's it's literally you get up on stage and you share your poetry. It's poetry. You share your poetry. Mm. And the poet and most people who come to it would not have called themselves poets. But the template kind of guides them into being able to write poetry. Okay. 
And just the simple fact that they're telling their story, it's the intro into a space where they start to embrace healing. And um, uh, the, the, the partnership is with Big Thought and Journeyman Inc. Will Ritchie, Alejandro Perez, amazing artists who, who incepted this idea. They partnered with us. We handle the logistics. We make sure that everything's taken uh, care of and they get to do the beautiful thing that they do. We are also the ones making sure that young people are getting these coaches, uh, the teaching artists out at their campuses. And so a young person, a middle schooler will come to after school, mm-hmm. uh, come to the diverse club and they will write and they will hear other um, students write. Um, the whole idea is to be able to work out all of that stuff that's inside. And and you tell them what to write about? They write. Their life? They write about their lives. Okay. It's their entire editorial content. Well, and there goes the EI, exactly. the emotional intelligence aspect is, of it. I call it I call it healing in a box almost. Healing in a box. That's good. And, and we say we use words like healing and emotional connection. Here's why that stuff is so important. Um I think sometimes it can sound fluffy to oh, people. No, I don't think so. See, we're, so needed. we're the choir, right? We are the choir. But but the reason why people really need to understand this is because we, we already said it's named as one of the top workforce skills now, emotional intelligence, right? Yes, it is. But the other part about it, though, Valerie, is that it is actually critical to our physical well-being to be able to wrestle with trauma. To understand what it meant to us, how it shaped our journey, and then how we can take it, grasp hold of it, and use it as a propellant into our next era, right? There's a study, a massive study that was done in 97, 98, and it was landmark because for the first time we had large data sets to show that what happens to us as a child has a material effect on the literal rest of our lives, Yes. Center for Disease Pro- Center for Disease um, Control and Prevention showed that hmm. um, a ca- they, they just listed out 10 categories of things that would happen to you or have happened to you before you turn 18. Mm-hmm. And they showed that there was a significant correlation to the number of categories of those traumatic experiences that might be witness maternal abuse, experience abuse yourself, experience neglect, um, um, would would have to go without for extended period of time, either hungry or, you know, not having kind of basic necessities. They have these different categories. Mm-hmm. What they showed was that you could start to predict certain types of cancer. You could start to predict really? congestive heart failure. You could start to predict diabetes as an adult based on the amount and the severity of these adverse childhood experiences. Oh, my God. Goodness, Byron. I had no idea. Yeah. What good work. And you said something earlier about uh, you were born to do this. We have a clip (laughs) of Byron talking for just a short amount of time. I want you to hear this. He is actually at the Presidential Leadership Scholar um, event, and he's been chosen as one of the speakers. So let's take a look. We all are required to push our aspirations to the furthest limit. To find our purpose for which God's granted breath and chase it with all the fervor we can muster. We don't have a right to not dream. It's the eternal's language. 
that speaks the divine assignment. We have a duty to answer that call and to stretch the limits of our life in the service of others, normal people empowered by supernatural determinacy. Because of this program's charge, I went back to Dallas with a purpose-driven burr nestled in my core. I knew that I knew that change was imminent. I let go of my plan and I opened myself to the possibilities for the work closest to my heart. So Byron, there was a lot in there about you've got to push yourself, uh, your aspirations and your dreams. You have your own mission statement that you shared, and I'd like you to share it and tell us how that mission, we should all have a mission statement. Amen. You know, who are we at our very core? That's, yeah. that has everything to do with our personal brand. Who yeah. are you really? No, who are you really, really <laughs> deeply down, right? Well, you came to that conclusion. Um, I'd like to you have you share with the audience how you came to this conclusion and what your personal mission statement is. In 2008, uh, it was a tough year um, for my family, but that was a kind of a crescendo of some things that have been stirring up in me for a long time. And um, the mission statement is, is this. The mission of Byron Keith Sanders is to love my God with all my heart and soul, to be the husband, father, son, and brother according to what pleases him and to work diligently and daily in my most sincere efforts to pursue my appointed purpose with honor, character, bravery, and love. Mm, Beautiful. I wrote that in 2007 and it hasn't changed. I mentioned 2008 because um, that was the year I acted on it. Mm. But the way I came to it was I'd had some experiences early on in life. Well, not that much earlier, but a little bit earlier than that, um, that taught me some powerful lessons that were hard learned. Mm. I was a young person um, um, who actually grew up in a household where there was domestic violence. And my, um, my mother um, suffered at the hands of my father for years. And some of my earliest memories are of violence. So, you know, we talk about the adverse childhood experiences, right? Like I, my ACEs score, I think, is about four or five. So I've got about five of those categories. Um, now, that shaped me in a pretty significant way that I would only learn about later on after really dissecting those experiences and, and uh, being self-reflective. But in hindsight, it made a ton of sense. So... I responded to that trauma in a way that's different from maybe the way a lot of people did. What I saw was that I had an ability to affect whether my mother was going to be safe or not based on how well I did in other things. So from a very early age, I recognized that if I brought home a sticker or good report card or medal or a trophy or some sort of accolades and I would run in and tell dad, Hey, look, look what I got. Look what I did. Then dad was happy. And when dad was happy, mom was safe. Oh, Byron. No pressure. No pressure, right? For a six-year-old. But I got good at getting good stuff to bring home. The other thing that I loved about 
being so involved and engaged is we're always at practice or rehearsal or, you know, trips and things like that. And whenever that was the case, you know, we're not home. And if mom's taking me to this or that, then that's less time where we have to walk on eggshells and visit a dark place, right? So what that did was that built this complex in my mind where I did feel like I had to be the savior. I felt like I was the fixer. There was something needing done. I was going to do it because that's what I've been doing all my life. And at six years old, you started figuring that out. Oh, yeah. I, I distinctly remember being done with one thing or when we were coming to be done with Odyssey of the Mind, I would go and look at bulletin boards to see if there was something else. Or if my teacher even casually mentioned something in class, I wanted to do it. I wanted to be there. I wanted to, we had to be moving constant motion. Mm -hmm. And and it built a lot of things. You know, I, I'm not afraid to try new things. I'm ambitious. I, um, I care about other people because most of these things had some sort of service element to it. Right. But I also had to go and, dive a little deeper, figure out why. Well, fast forward, I show up on a campus. I'm this guy throughout my entire life, and I go to school um, at, a, at SMU. And I get involved with so many different things. And, you know, you end up being on brochures and websites, and I'm like, okay, this is working. I'm doing it right somehow, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but I still didn't have a purpose. And what I've learned is that even good things, good traits, good skill sets, if misdirected, if not directed toward the reason why I feel like you were uniquely given that experience and these skills, that too could have its negative consequences. And that's what I experienced. So I got involved with an organization, a fraternal organization. I joined a fraternity and and we were supposed to be, you know, bringing this organization back. It had been kicked off campus. And so we were going to bring it back. A group of guys, some of my good friends to this very day, um, we joined. And then we learned that you had to do not just the regular process, but another process, too, in order to be legitimate in the organization. Well, I committed to it, so we're going to do it. I'm going to fix this thing, right? So I'm going to go undercover get my credibility, and then when I'm in charge, we'll turn the whole thing around. That was my mentality. Uh-huh. So we bring in the next line of guys. I, you know, I pledge, I cross, I get my letters, and we're bringing in new guys. And as we're going through that same process, because, you know, they have to have their credibility too, of course, nearly the worst happens. We almost lose a friend of mine. Uh, he nearly died. Drank too much water. And uh, it was a ritual where you drink the water, you say a poem, drink the water, say a poem for hours, which is very dangerous. And he had to um, be put in a um, medically induced coma, uh, suffered tremendously. And for a while, we thought that we would lose him. By the grace of God, he survived. But what do you think happened to everybody who was involved? Justifiably so. Expelled. There were some people who actually were facing charges. 
So you take the kid who is the Midas touch kid in his mind. Anything I do, I can do it. I've been doing this my whole life. Uh-huh. And I'm saving things. I'm fixing stuff. And this thing that I, this is the first time something crumbled in my hands. First time I was in a place where I genuinely hurt somebody. Genuinely hurt somebody. Because of the hazing. Because of the hazing. Mm. And it all became because I removed myself from principle. I got away from what I knew was right, what I should have been doing in the first place. And I didn't have a purpose other than do good, leave a legacy, and that's it. Sometimes that's not enough. And because a guy actually had the presence of mind to find his purpose 20 some odd years before this moment, he was in a place to give me a lifeline that I never knew that I needed. Earl Johnson was at the University of Tulsa and he was the only person I had an opportunity to sit down with and tell my story when I tried to reapply to places. When you're expelled, it's like an academic felony. You have to check a box. Oh, wow. And so nobody's, nobody's looking to bring that kid in. Mm-mm. He gave me a chance. I went up there. I sat down and talked with him. I came back two excruciating weeks later. I got a call. They had voted to allow me to attend uh, University of Tulsa. And I knew I was going to take those lessons with me. I would step up there. So I went up there. I knew one person. By the end of that year, I'd been student body president. But, by, but I recognized where that came from this time. It wasn't my individual greatness. It wasn't because I was just amazing. It was because of the grace of other people. The ability for people to buy into a vision and, and, to, and, to, and, to, and to move together. For me to listen to other people, to understand what really mattered to folks. Like those where I got, that's where I got those lessons. Graduated. It was fantastic. Came back and then I was taking all of that experience and I was going to pharmaceutical sales. (laughs) Great. I can sell anything. Yes, you can. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't where I was supposed to be using those experiences. And I knew that, but it took a while for me to say it out loud. The thing that helped me say it out loud was crystallizing all of that into this mission statement. Mm. Be on an intentional, purpose-driven pathway. And that's what led me to make a tough decision. I resigned from pharmaceutical sales, joined a mentor and tutoring organization. And that, you know, that's all she wrote. The rest has been a beautiful experience ever since. You know, Byron, thank you for sharing. That's a deep story, first of all. And you're willing and vulnerable, that's a leadership trait, to get on camera for uh, this audience and share something that deep. So thank you, first of all, for doing that. And that leads to understanding, then, why you're so passionate about the work that you're doing. Um, Goodness, there's so much more to say. (laughs) But I I want to... um, I want to have you end with one quick, yeah, quick. <laughs> story with a quick about story. something that I don't want to let go. Because this whole show, Byron, is about leaders who are doing it right. And for someone like you to come on the show and share all of the stuff, bad stuff, yeah. that happened to you, yeah. that in spite of you had the wherewithal, which from your mission statement, we know where that comes from. Mm. 
a God who loves you and had you in his hands the whole time. But to come out of that and be doing the work that you're doing now that's impacting so many people that could be left behind and be be unforget be forget forgotten actually there was one other thing though that um, many people might find more than impactful for a young father and if you don't mind sharing um, what almost happened to your little guy named Bryce my man can you tell us about Bryce and what that did for you November 13th is a very special day in our house, and it's connected to this story. That's his birthday. I have two kids, my daughter, 11, and my son, 10. My daughter's name is Bailey, and then we have Bryce. And we loved the name Bryce. We were going to rock with that name. That was our name. I like that, too. Yeah. Um, But he came a lot faster than we thought he was going to be here. And so we actually didn't have anything but Bryce when we went to the hospital. So woke up early that morning and my wife could not go to the restroom and we didn't know why. Um, Later on, she went in just to get checked out. We'll see. Um, And they noticed they did, they were doing some, uh, some of the diagnostics and Bryce wasn't moving um, very much. That was the reason why she was a little nervous. And what stage was he at? Um, This was 31 weeks. So we're, Still, we, we got a ways to go. This was November 13th. His birth date should have been January. Mm. Um, I think maybe January 10th or something like that. January 13th. <clears throat> well, they tried doing the little sonogram shock, you know, just kind of get him moving. Nothing was working. He was not responsive. Uh, so much so that the physician said, we're going to have to do an emergency a cesarean. Uh, he could be in fetal distress. And so I get the call and I'm flying over there just to be my wife because, you know, we're scared. We have a lot of faith and we were scared. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get there for, for those of you who have either experienced a C-section or with their significant other who has experienced one, then, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it doesn't take a long time. Right. So I go in and we're concerned. He's young. Boys develop slower than um, um, girls in utero. And so we were concerned about his lungs. We were concerned about his eyes. We were concerned. We were concerned. And the doctors were too. They were trying to, you know, um, but I've read enough books yeah. <laughs> at that point. Go in, start the procedure. And then I hear the most beautiful cry in the world. And Bryce is born. And there he is, Mm. tiny. Tiny. He was just over three pounds. Mm. But he was alive. Mm -hmm. And he was screaming. And he was strong. And we were um, just so grateful in that moment. And so they get him squared away in the uh, isolate for the NICU. And we're going to roll him down. And I, I remember kissing Celeste on the head. And I was just saying, good job. And I love you so much. And I'll see you in a little bit. So we go get him squared away in the NICU, and I go back to the room where they're supposed to be bringing Celeste back out. One hour passes, uh, two hours pass, getting into the third hour, and I'm like, hmm, I don't, we had a cesarean with Bailey. I was like, I don't remember this taking this long. So I went out to the nurse's station and said, hey, what's going on? Um, they called in, and I was watching her the whole time just to see if I can read cues. 
It'll be just another hour. Four hours, five, eight hours pass. And then they finally roll her out. And at that moment, I just knew I was so glad to see her. But we would only find out later on what was actually happening. What actually happened is um, my wife was suffering from a condition that you won't know until you, you have the procedure. It doesn't show up. Hmm. Her placenta had grown through her uterus and was attaching to other parts of her body, kind of like a cancer. Ugh. And it's a bloody, veiny mass. And so you have to remove it, which requires severing many veins and arteries. And it's a huge bleed risk. Uh, 20 years ago, you know, this was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. But we happened to be at the only hospital that had brought over an experimental procedure from the battlefields of Iraq on getting blood to a patient five times faster than before. My wife needed two body volumes of blood transplanted because it took that long and she lost that many. So she had all new blood twice over, which is a, another high risk, but she survived. Mm. And the only reason we had gone in was because little baby Bryce wasn't moving. His heart was just very still, mm -hmm. which by the way, we never got a medical explanation for why that happened. So when nobody else could tell his mommy that there was something wrong, Bryce was. Interesting. That's how he got his name. So his name, his middle name is actually Bryce. His whole name is Paul William Bryce Sanders. Paul means small. William means protector. That's what he was for my wife and his mother. And it all turned out all right. Amen to Give that, sister. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this yeah. is so interesting because um, as we have to close up, darn it, this has been a different show. Mm. I honestly expected it to be much more business because you are such a businessman in this community <laughs> and you are doing so many things in leadership. But this show is exactly what it's supposed to be. All right. And we both know that. So I want to thank you for the work you're doing. Yes, thank it's you. It's org, is it? You got it. Nailed it. Bigthought.org. And other organizations in other cities ought to be looking at bigthought.org because putting art with um, learning and all of the three things that you mm -hmm. said you're doing is pretty amazing. And and you're you're known, just FYI audience, you're known in the Metroplex for the work that you're doing. So bless you for that. Thank and, you so much. And Robert. it's just been it's just been a joy to have you on. It's been a joy to know you. I'm <laughs> serious. You. I mean that. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're doing it right. All You're right. doing it right. And for all of you, as always, I want you to stay tuned next time when we'll have another wonderful person on the show talking about the things that are important to them in leadership and in their life. And so until next time, bye for now, and you stay authentic and push those passions. Bye. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, valerieandcompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again. 
to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.